Hello, Stuart. Hello, Tom. Hello. Stuart, would you eat some sushi from... I Sorry, I didn't, you no, I didn't let you answer it. And I know Question canonically, yeah, canonically, you like that's part of the studies show canon is that you like <laughs> sushi. But I haven't uh-huh. told you where the sushi's from yet, Stuart. Oh, oh, okay. okay. I'm in, I'm Would intrigued. you eat sushi from Itsu? Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no. <under> circumstances. <laughs> okay, so not from Itsu. No. Would you eat sushi if the fish that was used to make the sushi had been caught in the waters off Fukushima? Fukushima? Oh, well, there's an interesting question. Well, you know, Tom, if it's good enough for the Prime Minister of Japan, who uh, in uh, last month, I think, ate some sushi, uh, I believe it was a flounder, caught from uh, the the, uh, waters around Fukushima, then it's good enough for me. Good Uh, for you, Stuart. Good for you. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was doing that because... Uh, perhaps uh, it's obvious, but he was doing that because uh, there are fears that the waters around Fukushima uh, have a dangerous level of radiation because they've been releasing water that they've uh, been been collecting since the uh, uh, nuclear disaster there in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole thing reminds me of, do, do you remember that um, uh, UK minister who ate the burger during the... Uh, John Selwyn Gummer. John yes, Selwyn well, Gummer, yeah. that's his name. Uh, he ate a burger to try and show the UK that actually eating beef, you know, British beef was okay again after the mad cow disease BSE scare. Okay, so th- so it wasn't just him though, was it? He made he 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 got his son or his child to eat it as well. I remember a picture of that, yeah. Yes, which I, I like however strongly you feel that British beef was safe, I do feel that tips it from perfectly reasonable sort of demonstration of your sort of um, confidence to slightly weird you know like. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah getting your child to yeah mm, yes yeah, using yeah. them as a, a little prop like that yeah, yeah exactly, like. anyway yeah. but the, the the point is um we're talking today about nuclear power and uh some of the fears that are around it and some of the science uh and whether or not it backs up those fears um welcome to the study show my name's Stuart Ritchie I'm a science writer at the I. Hello, and I'm Tom Chivers. I'm a science writer at Semaphore. Yeah, and uh, this is the podcast where we talk about a controversial scientific issue every week. If you've been enjoying it uh, so far, we've got lots of episodes on it, lots of interesting topics that you can go and listen to uh, at thestudyshowpod.com. Um, and you can subscribe there. You can uh, even take out a paid subscription if you're being uh, if you're feeling very, very kind. And um, you can do lots of other things too. You can give us a like on the show you can uh leave us a review on your podcast uh, app that you that you use apple podcasts or or wherever um and you can tell your friends about the show as well so with Very that important. said yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um with all that said let's get into it nuclear power tom here's my question to you nuclear power seems like it's like it's really good in in lots of ways the main one is that it gives us loads of energy without producing much carbon dioxide right so it's it's not contributing massively to the greenhouse gases and global warming mm-hmm. um and and yet the world gets a, a a lessening proportion of its electricity from nuclear power over time so in the 90s um it was something like 17 or 18 percent of world electricity was generated from nuclear power but now it's only about 10 percent uh, another way of putting that is that the, the amount of nuclear uh, electricity generated or electricity generated from nuclear power has plateaued even as the population of the world has has gone on increasing mm-hmm. if nuclear is so good why are we using less and less of it well um you know as you write as you pointed out we're not technically using less and less we are 
using the same amount, but you're less right. Less and less per capita. Less, right. less and less per capita and less and less as a proportion of the sort of total energy mix. And, and that's, yeah. you're absolutely right. In, in the US, they've just, I think any day now, they're going to open a new a nuclear power station in Georgia, which will be the first one in the whole of the US, scratch built in 30 years. Um, and the UK's Hinkley Point C will be a, for the first in decades that when it, when it when it's not opened yet, is it? It's still it's still but ch- chundering you know, away. A very long time. Do you remember that video yeah. of Nick Clegg in 2011 saying, "Well, we wouldn't want to open, we wouldn't want to plan any nuclear power stations because it'll take till you know 2021 yeah, uh, for, like, to, to come out." As if that was like a massively long way in the future that we would yeah, never yeah. get to. Which it obviously is because, like you know, I'm. It's obviously it's, the 1990 can't be 30 years ago. So that's that's, that's what I'm saying. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it is. It is. And the the if you look at it on a graph, what what you see is from the sort of 70s and 80s they were adding. And I, this is why I, I can never remember what, my my megawatts and my terawatts and so on. But I'm pretty sure yes. they're adding about 500 gigawatts of energy of uh, electrical energy a year for a sort of worldwide. And then from 1986, you suddenly see that that changes. That changes quite dramatically. Suddenly, instead of sort of a, the graph going up, it suddenly levels off. And by the mid 2000s, late 2000s, early 2010s, it's basically a flat line. Um, and what happened in the mid 80s or in specifically oh, what 1986? Yeah, yes. well, we'll, we'll, we'll come we'll come to that. But uh, there is a there is a, you know you may be screaming at your uh, uh, well I was going to say radio or speaker, but you probably got this in your ears. Yes, you're yeah, yeah. screaming. Uh, at your phone. We'll, yeah, screaming we'll come to your phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll come we'll come to that. Um, but uh, but it's part of a broader discussion about the safety of nuclear power because one of the one of the reasons people uh, might not want to use nuclear power and governments might kind of de-emphasize it in their mix of energy generation is that people uh, fear it, that they fear it's unsafe. And obviously nothing is 100% perfectly safe. Yeah. Uh, so you have to ask the question, what, you're, what are you comparing it to? Yes. And what, what are you comparing nuclear power to in terms of its safety? Yeah. So I think there are, yeah, that's exactly it. So there are a few questions you want answered, aren't there, about about nuclear power compared to other things. And I think we'll, we'll look into this. I think the three big questions are, firstly, is it safe? Secondly, the big question people have is, what do you do with the waste? And thirdly, is it cost-effective? Because, you know, we see all these things yeah. about how incredibly um, cheap solar and wind are getting these days. So sort of, we'll try and take that all in some sort of, in roughly that order. And the first question is, is it safe? And is I th- it I secret? Think- is it safe? <laughs> is it secret? Is it safe? Uh, that's that's a Lord of the Rings reference. For, it's not for, yeah. it's not secret. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, it's but, definitely not. But it is safe. I think I think uh, it is okay to answer this in one, relatively speaking, in in one word that straightforward. By yeah. the standards of energy generation, nuclear is you could say is it safe? Yes, I think I think that's fair. Like obviously, like you said, nothing is one hundred percent perfectly safe. Literally, nothing is. But it does depend on what you're comparing to. We, the world needs electricity to operate the modern world just would would fall apart without it and you've got to you know what you're going to generate that energy and that electricity somehow and there are various options for doing that for 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 a lot of human history the um uh, our electricity was generated by coal stations and yeah. you know often still is in some parts of the world so what you want you know, what you want to ask is per unit of electricity generated how dangerous are these different things? And um, right. I, I'm sure most listeners will be aware of our world in data um, 
the just brilliant Great website. Just fantastic website. It's, it's it's sort of quietly powerful. If they ever make a mistake on it, suddenly it appears in every smart person's opinions because they because everyone who right, everyone uses it as a source. Yeah, yeah. we'll yeah, put exactly. a link. Uh, our, our world in data. We'll put a link uh, in Into the. Thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, but the, um, the brilliant Hannah Ritchie, very much um, friend of the pod. Uh, no relation. Does, no, no, exactly. Well, so I always have to say I, I reference yeah. Hannah Ritchie all the time when I'm talking about climate change stuff and energy, and I always have to say no relation. It's yeah. just that there's a lot of people called Richie in Scotland. When we do have her on the on the show, I hope we do someday. But I'm just going to insist on thinking she's your sister or something. It's going to be just, <laughs> just batter that joke to death. We've got different accents, though. You'll hear uh, if that ever happens. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, so she she did a great piece compare you know comparing the safest sources of energy and um, looking at the death rates per terawatt hour of energy produced. So a terawatt hour is um, but roughly enough energy to power 150,000 homes for a year. So right. for each and and she looking at evidence from various data sources, including um, UN figures on atomic energy and the IPCC and all these things, she reckons that for every ter- for every terawatt hour of energy produced, so if you imagine it, enough electricity power of one hundred fifty thousand home town for one year, about twenty four people would die if it was produced by coal. That's oh. partly from air pollution. Uh, it's partly from mining accidents. And, you know, okay, problems. so like direct stuff when they're mining the coal out, but also it fills the air with little particles which go on to cause lung disease, cancers, yes, uh, exactly. other things that kill people. Yeah, yeah exactly. So about 24.6 is the figure there. Oil is rather safer. You get about 18.4 deaths per terawatt hour. And um, natural gas is much safer still at about 2.8. Um, but still, well, you know, that's, that's dramatically safer than coal. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, about ten uh, percent as as deadly. But then, if you look at the renewables, the wind and solar, they're at sort of zero point zero four and zero point zero two respectively, and nuclear energy is in between at zero point zero three. That's and and really the, the, really small compared to yeah, exactly. a coal two, power two, station. Let me see two three three orders of magnitude. Uh, so yeah. about you know um, a thousandth as dangerous as as coal. So, so, and that that takes into account. It's really important to say that takes into account deaths from Chernobyl and Fukushima, which we'll come back to in a moment. Well, we'll Hydropower is yeah, worth yeah. noting. Hydropower is really interesting because um, that is up at one point three deaths, so still safer than natural gas per terawatt hour, and vastly safer than oil or coal. But because of a horrible now, I there was there was one particular disaster in a um yeah the Bangkiao I think it's pronounced dam failure in China in nineteen seventy five, which huh? killed one hundred and seventy one thousand people. Good and that's enough to bump up there. Um, that without that, it's it's sort of and that's like a verified number because we're going to get into some of the nuclear disasters where the numbers are a bit dodgy. Like, are we are we sure about that number? Uh, you know what? I don't the, know. I don't know. I, I don't know how how good the death records were in um, in China in 1975. I, I think someone mm, dying yeah. from a, a flood of a, da- a da- you know a, a flood from a dam breaking going through a river valley is probably it's easier to tell who was and who wasn't killed from that than from right then it is modeling cancer rates which we'll get to we keep uh, throwing forward to the next yes we do but, we do uh, okay yeah. <laughs> but yeah so so straightforwardly looking at these things uh, the um it looks like nuclear is vastly safer than the um uh than the fossil fuels and comparably safe to to renewable energy right. and now everyone goes but hang on hang on hang on hang on what about Chernobyl? What about Fukushima? And it's a reasonable right. thing because they really and other things too. I mean, those are the those are the the two sort of big biggest ones. Mm. But there's also other ones. We had uh, wind scale in the UK, Three um, Mile Island, and Three in, Mile Island in the US, Jersey, yeah. somewhere like that. Yeah. But these are you know smaller scale things which loom, even though they're even though they're smaller, they loom large in people's 
imagination about nuclear power, you think about that. And also, I think it's fair to say, even though it's it's not um, the most you know scientific uh, connection, people also think about nuclear weapons too, right? Yes. I mean, those are literally things where you are releasing loads of radiation in a massive explosion that is designed to kill lots of people, um, uh, which is not, it's obviously not what happens in the nuclear, uh, with nuclear power, but I think it all merges together into general people's fears of, of nuclear power in general. That's, I think that's both true and probably sort of understandable. Although I do wonder why people sort of don't sort of roll in fuel air bombs, you know, like the, um, to in, right. in with their in, in image of internal combustion engines or, you know, um, oil power yeah. stations but yeah anyway. Cops running people over and stuff yeah. so yes you're right but actually the death tolls from chernobyl and fukushima i uh, it's worth looking into them because uh, in in hannah's estimate of the terawatt hour death rate she obviously has to make an estimate of how many people died at these different uh, at chernobyl and at fukushima and it's, yeah. it's interesting seeing where these end up so because chernobyl in particular gets this incredible image of you know people sort of think of it of having killed swathes of people causing cancers across the uh, across central europe and eastern europe and with but it's it's actually very hard to tell if the, if anybody died of really cancer from it at all really huh. I, think it's, I think that's that's it's not there, so 30 people died on the day uh in in chernobyl there were a lot of people right. died it just it, in the explosion, in the cleanup, you know, people died of acute radiation sickness in the immediate aftermath. Just for, you know, their body was. And it, should, it should be said uh, that if you if you follow the story of what happened at Chernobyl, like it was almost. I mean, if if it wasn't such a terrible thing, it would be an almost comical series of uh, mishaps and events that occurred that led to the explosion. Now, it was a it was a poorly designed nuclear reactor, but also. You know, they were doing a, a, an experimental test on the reactor, and then a call came in from another part of the USSR saying, "We need more power, so please don't power down your station to do the test. We need to make it. You know, we we, we need more power for a certain amount of time." So the next shift had to take over, and they didn't really know what they were doing with the test, and they had few, less experience. And and there's a huge long chain of just screw ups that occurred yeah. that um that that are almost unbelievable that it all happened, and then. The Soviet government kind of covered it up and didn't even admit that anything had happened for several days afterwards. Um, yeah. So, like, there's loads of stuff which you would expect not to happen in countries that are not the USSR, and also just in general, it was just an amazingly, you know, unlucky set of events. It was. Although I will say, if we're if you're imagining a world in which nuclear power provides a lot of the electricity, presumably a lot of the, you know there'll be a lot of nuclear plants and there'll be there's more room for occasional bad luck yeah. things. You yeah. know, so like it's, I, I can understand someone who's nuclear skeptical saying, "Well, okay, yeah, there was a lot of bad you're luck there." But you're asking more, more of these <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. We will, get into, we will get into different reactor designs, which might deal with that. We'll come, we'll come to that later on. But yeah, okay. just to say, like that, um, and, and you compare it to Fukushima, where even fewer people died from the actual, you know, the accident itself, like from you know radiation sickness, uh, radiation sickness, and so on. And you see that it doesn't necessarily mean that lots of people are going to die, even the people who are immediately in the plant at the time yeah. that it happens. Yeah, so if those 30 people died very short term, we can definitely say those 30 people were killed by the Fukushima disaster. Of yep. the people who were who suffered acute radiation sickness on that day, lot, most of them they got better. They didn't. Well, they all you know the, one, the ones who didn't die obviously got better. Um, but they uh, some of them then died before 2006 when the UN Sci um, Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation um, study came out, and they, they so they found 19 people died of something 
by 2006. <laughs> but five of them died of uh, cancer, which you may, you know, maybe that very plausibly could have been something to do with it. But, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of them would died of cancer anyway. Yeah, exactly. So you can't, so you can't know, don't you? That, that, but you know, it wouldn't be wouldn't be crazy to add that five, those five to the thirty. Yeah. But another fourteen died of things like tuberculosis, which I probably wouldn't lump in with them. You know, I, I think mm. that's that 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 so that, that, that becomes trickier to add to it. And those are the only people we actually know who we can actually point to them and say you died from because of Chernobyl. They're, they're, right. All the rest is trying to find statistical increases in cancer risk in a large population, or it's trying to model the effects of radiation and what we know about radiation and sort of positing that therefore we'd expect this many deaths and therefore let's say there were, you know? Um, So that's, so this UNSCEAR, um, United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, that was 2000, I think think the study went up to 2006, was published in 2008. Um, It Mm -hmm. had... No, found no evidence of increases in leukemia or most solid cancers in the surrounding area. It did find an apparently real and pretty significant increase in thyroid cancers in young people. There's obviously some screening issues here because if people are obviously looking very hard for cancers in the aftermath of it, but it does look very yeah. clearly that um, basically radioactive iodine isotope got into milk and that got into children's thyroid glands. And so you see this pretty dramatic um between 1986 and 1990, there were uh, like fewer than five cases, like four cases per million in um, children. And then in the years after that, 1991 to 95, when the people who, when the kids who had grown up in the immediate aftermath were reached, sort of had been had been exposed for a little while, they went okay. up to 25 per million. So it's it's a big jump, and there's there about the estimate reckons that there were. 6,000 cases attributable to Chernobyl, of which 15 were fatal by 2005, because uh, thyroid cancer is very treatable. Right, so um, we're not... Just, just, to, just to reiterate, those numbers you're talking about were cases of cancer, not deaths. Yeah, 6,000 cases, exactly. Cases of yeah. cancer, and then uh, uh, then probably 15 died. Um, right. So, so, you know, that's... that it, Again, this is horrible. It's children getting cancer, and even if they don't die, it's really not very nice, right? It's, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, it's horrible, but it's not... So far, we're still in fairly small numbers of actual actual deaths, insofar as we can say that about these horrible things. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Hannah Ritchie on our world and data sort of actually thinks that we can go a bit higher than that, if because they, they she reckons that if you take the number of cases and then estimate the usual rate of um, survival from thyroid cancer, which is between ninety two and ninety eight percent of not, so, yeah, then then you get up to a range of deaths between. Uh, so 96 and 385 so, but she says that's really uncertain it's a really wide estimate but you know we're talking high tens to hundreds to t- tens to low hundreds of deaths from from thyroid from thyroid cancer and then the ones on the day so though, again these are these are all the ones we can get from actually looking at increased cancer rates in um in the population so that's all that's those those are all so we've got the ones we can definitely point to that definitely were caused by um fukushima and then this spike of cancer uh, of cancer incidents in thyroid cancer which we can then say statistically probably some of these people who died we can blame uh, chernobyl for and then you say well is that it and the answer is probably you know maybe not because Cancer has loads of causes. Incident goes up. Incidence goes up and down quite a lot. Chernobyl, if it's Chernobyl increased risk slightly in loads and loads of people, it could have caused a reasonable number of deaths without us being able to detect it statistically. That's that's 
perfectly possible. So people try and um, they try and model it. They, and there's one thing they use, which is called the linear no threshold model. And ah, what, no, I've heard, heard this, this is a bit of a this is a bit of a bugbear in the world of. Uh, nuclear policy it discussions it's controversial it's a controversial yeah, yeah, yeah. thing the linear no threshold model yes okay so uh, the lnt um so what it does is it looks at the rates of people who survive who've been exposed to high doses of radiation so people like for uh, classically the hiroshima and nagasaki survivors but also patients and doctors exposed to large amounts of x-rays like you're doing an x-ray every, every day or whatever yeah yeah exactly there's a, a, we'll, we'll link in the show notes to a, a discussion of the history of the LNT. It's really interesting, to, uh, that I, something I learned when I was looking up into all this, that, them, that X-rays were discovered in 1895, and the link, the link between X-rays and cancer, or radiation and cancer, was, was sort of mooted pretty confidently by two, within seven years, by 1902, and it was pretty just an accepted fact within 20 years. So they'd have moved pretty fast on this. Okay, so, what, so you, get, you get these rates of cancers in sort of high, dose, high doses, and then you just you sort of plot them on a graph and you draw the line of the graph back down and you assume that it's a straight line relationship between you know all the way back down and so that very low so, so that roughly if you if you if someone gets if someone gives you if, if you give someone 100 arbitrary radiation units and you notice that gives them a one in a thousand chance of developing cancer then the lnt assumes that giving them one imaginary you know arbitrary radiation unit We'll give them a one in ten thousand chance, and it's just as straightforward as that. To, to that, that, that that sounds that sounds far too straightforward. If you t- if you have a very very low dose of something like alcohol, mm-hmm. then your liver will metabolize it, and you won't get any effect at all. If you just keep drinking a few drops of alcohol every single day, it's not like you're raising your risk of you know some sort of alcohol related disease by a tiny amount each day. It's you're not raising it at all because your liver will will metabolize it out right and eventually it'll get to the point where your liver metabolizes things you know it it, it becomes overwhelmed if you go binge drinking or something or you're drinking huge amounts of strong alcohol and you start to you'll start to see effects but if you're just taking a few drops it doesn't make sense to to draw the line backwards to a situation where you're just taking a few drops right and that's an analogy to how the body well, no, might deal exactly with exactly um well this is so jack Devani, Devani, we 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 argued a bit before coming on the show. How we no idea how to pronounce that. In fact, if you look on the internet, it's pronounced multiple ways. Yeah, so we apologise to Jack uh, for mispronouncing his name. Certainly, (laughs) yeah. But he he's um, he's a he's a nuclear engineer and blogger who's written lots a real booster. He's definitely a nuclear booster, shall we could say. And his problem with LNT is exactly that. That he calls it a repair denier. He says that your body's pretty good at fixing things that go wrong unless it's overwhelmed by loads of damage at once. So if, right. if like an alpha particle smashes your DNA and then your cell can fix the DNA or if the cell's damaged, you're, there are other, they, they can kill that cell and then make a new one. You know, there's, so, I mean, so he argues and lots of other people argue that there's probably some threshold by which it can, below which it can indeed deal with the damage fairly easily. So that is... A criticism of so the he LNT. says he says as opposed to there being no threshold he says there actually is, there is a threshold below which your body yeah. will be able to recover and 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 repair itself and we're all exposed to all sorts of radiation every day yeah. more if you go on a plane uh, mm. or go to Aberdeen um, or something like that where I believe there's lots of radiation in the granite Cornwall that, uh, Cornwall has loads as well yeah Cornwall too yeah, yeah. well the yeah. top and the bottom of the country. Does that does that mean you're increasing your cancer risk? Probably not, because if there are any changes made to your DNA by the by the radiation, it's going to be able to be repaired in in in, in most cases. So it seems a bit yeah. silly to extrapolate large effects down. And and this really matters because when you're doing a model, when a nu- when there's been an accidental radioactive release and you're trying to 
do a, a model of how many people are going to die from that, you you have to either state that there's no threshold or a threshold, right? Because you, you're the 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 number of deaths is going to come from that assumption. It's going yeah. to make a huge difference to how many you know your numbers that you get out of your your model. Exactly, because it would be the equivalent of saying, if you're saying there's no threshold, then giving ten thousand people a drop of alcohol should, in theory, produce the same number of you know over, over a, a, a day should in theory give the, have the same number cause the same number of deaths as giving 10,000 drops of alcohol to one person do you see what I mean that, that that's <laughs> that's that's what Devaney is arguing that people do when they're calculating nuclear yes deaths. exactly um he's got this amazing story which again we'll link to in um in the show notes from in his blog the, the or his, his book that's also available online called the Gordian knot it's this extraordinary story about how after the second world war there's this you know, you hear about those these um, these utterly unethical scientific experiments that mm. happened in the forties and fifties and sixties, just like just like gobsmackingly terrible. And um, to establish how deadly radiation was after Second World War, after Second World War, Manhattan Project scientists injected eighteen people without their knowledge with plutonium. They all they all had terminal illnesses, which makes it. Still terrible. I mean, like more understandable, maybe, but still utterly terrible. Um, just makes it, it does not it does not make it okay at all. And yeah. Devani says eight eight of the eighteen died within two years of the injection, all from their pre existing illnesses or from cardiac failure. None of them from the plutonium. And one huh. patient. This is the incredible bit. One patient had been misdiagnosed. He didn't have stomach he cancer wasn't at all. Yeah, exactly. He had a perfectly treatable ulcer. He had, no, he had a stomach ulcer. He lived for another 20 years, despite having received the highest ever cumulative dose of radiation of any human, because it's just in there, just giving off radiation in his, you know, he's like a little, uh, in his body. For eight. He and died of an apparently unrelated heart disease without ever knowing he'd been injected unbelievable. 20 years later. And absolutely yeah, unbelievable. Devani, yeah, absolutely incredible. Uh, um, according to Devani, well, Devani writes that, according to the linear no threshold model, he should have been dead 10 times over, but he, his body just absorbed it. It's just fa- fascinating, incredible to me. Um, so wait, did he have that dose over a long period of time then? So it was just, he had a bit of, um, he had he had a bit of uranium, uh, plutonium just inside him. Right, so it's giving, it's off. giving off, it's giving off radiation the whole time. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and his yeah, body, yeah. presumably, at least it's, it's consistent yeah. with, the, with the, the, the evidence that his body is just repairing the damage that it's doing. As, yeah. as it as it goes along, yeah. yes, yes, and his stomach his stomach also got better. Like God, it's just an astonishing story. Um, all right, so but even if uh, LNT were real, I, I spoke. I'm speaking to scientists about this before. Like that, um, I spoke to three or four for a piece I wrote for for the Eye back in the day. Actually, your your oh, yes. your employer, and um, a couple of them said one of them said that LNT is completely mad and ridiculous. And we shouldn't use it. And the other two said it's a sort of useful fiction for draw, you know drawing a model or whatever. You know, it's not. But is that because not, we don't know what the threshold is? Exactly, don't know what the threshold is. Don't know what right. the risk is at the low doses. It's just it's right. not a stupid way of doing, going about things. But the the dose from Chernobyl is so tiny that actually it doesn't really matter anyway. There are some estimates of the number of deaths using the LNT. There are various different people estimate different levels of deaths. But the so the atomic uh, the International Atomic Energy Association or uh, Administration Authority. Anyway, uh, whatever the last day is. Yeah, good, good question. I don't. Know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I okay. forget the name of these things. Yeah, I A E A. Sorry about this. Um, <laughs> International Atomic Energy Agency. I'm so sorry. About right. I E um, I A E A. Yes. Yes. Um, they they estimated four thousand with the UN. There was a there was 
an independent report, the other report on Chernobyl or Torch, which was commissioned yeah, by the EU. other report on Chernobyl. So it's T O R C H. I mean, okay, bizarre title. Yeah, yeah, and by by EU Green Party members, they managed to get up to thirty thousand to sixty thousand. Um, and they accused the IEA, IAEA of hiding a, another um, further 5,000 in their own figures. But this is, this is the interesting bit. This is, this is where the LNT stuff gets weird because they're saying, okay, another 6.8 million people would have been exposed to 7 millisieverts of radiation leading to another 5,000 deaths. But there's so many different um, units, sieverts, greys, yeah, 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 all yeah. these things. I'd, I'm not even going to try and keep them all straight in my head or yours. <laughs> it's not worth going into it. Um, yeah. But... Six point six point. If there were six point eight million people exposed to seven millisieverts, that would lead to another five thousand cancer deaths, according to this low, uh, to their to the IAEA's own use of the um, uh, linear no threshold model. Yeah, but seven millisieverts is about about what you get in Cornwall if you just right. live in Cornwall. It's very yeah, Cornwall's a very nice place, far southeast of England, very beautiful seas, nice fish there. pirates there. Yeah, 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 fishy, in yeah. fact. Um, to go back go to a previous topic. Yes, exactly. And if you and if you go a real artist's haven around St Ives, gorgeous, love it, love it down there. Anyway, but because there's granite there, which is has. Um, uh, it's slightly radioactive, de- decays to uh, let, let, gives off radon as it as it um, as it decays. Yeah, you get a bit more than seven millisieverts just living around there, um, and that like no one go, no one's terrified of living in Cornwall for the cancer risk. The yeah, huge like, cancer epidemic in Cornwall exactly. and Aberdeen. So yeah. it just, I mean, it just. It, it it immediately feels as weird to say these five thousand deaths are a real thing because yeah. we're saying are you, are, if we moved if we say if we moved six point eight million people to uh, to Cornwall we'd get five thousand cancer deaths and we'd have to blame on on it doesn't work it just it seems crazy to me and once again this is all um, modelling right there's yeah. there's literally no one you can point to apart from people on the site who you can point to and say you Chernobyl killed this person there's only the increased thyroid cancer rate and there's no uh, that, and all the rest is just modeling and the model seems very shaky so that's it, it's why. really funny there's there's so many other models as well if you just spend a bit of time just looking online you can find basically any number that you want for the number of deaths because because of presumably the model assumptions and probably a little bit of figure on the scale stuff from yeah. some of the modelers so we've mentioned four thousand deaths we've mentioned uh um 38,000 to 60 yeah. to 60,000 um our old pals at the IARC the um oh, yeah. friends of the pod yep. feature <laughs> who <laughs> featured in our episode on uh, Sparsame they think 16,000 uh oh, okay. 16,000 deaths um but that might and I think they think there they had a study where some of the people said that there were 41,000 cases of cancer um by 2065 but they made clear that that's in the context of hundreds of millions of cases of cancer that would happen. And, you know, just you would expect that to happen anyway. Yeah. Um, but just going back to deaths, the Russian Academy of Sciences uh, said that they, were, they, were, they had modeled 200,000 deaths up to 2010. The Belarus National Academy of Sciences said 93,000 deaths up to 2010. Mm. Um, the Ukraine National Commission for Radiation Protection said 500,000 deaths. Uh, and that was up to 2010. And then, if you look at Greenpeace, they like lean on some of the higher the higher end estimates. It's mad. Um, yeah, it's mad. And it's just, uh, like, especially you when to... you think about how low the numbers are on the on the on the, on the end of the scale, and how how low the numbers are that we can actually confirm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, the other thing is like 
the, the you would if if you if you expected these these big numbers, you would expect to see people getting cancer more near Chernobyl than away from it. I think it's meant to be Chernobyl, isn't it? Anyway, but anyway, um, and there's just no there's not a detectable increased death rate near you near chernobyl than there is away from chernobyl which you know from a sort of dose response thing you would expect that if there were these big numbers and it just doesn't seem to be the unscear said in 2018 that the vast majority of the population were exposed to low levels of radiation comparable at most to a few times the annual natural background radiation levels and need not live in fear of serious health consequences this is true for the populations of the three countries most affected by the chernobyl incident belarus the russian federation ukraine and even more so for the populations of other european countries to date there has been no persuasive of evidence that any other health effects in the general population of, of sorry of any other health effect in the general population that can be attributed to radiation exposure so it just looks like it didn't like it just didn't really kill i think the safest bet is that it just didn't really bump the numbers up at all there were the the early horrible deaths maybe a few thousand cases of cancer which is obviously horrible but probably not leading to that many deaths uh hannah ritchie again she reckons combined the confirmed death toll from Chernobyl is less than 100. We still don't know the true death toll. My best approximation is that the true death toll is in the range of 300 to 500 based on the available evidence. 300 to 500 compared to 500,000, which is the yes. highest estimate. That I've Incredible. Seen. Incredible. Uh, re- really. I mean, and, uh, and it just goes to show, like, we, you know, we're trying to ask, uh, answer the question of why people don't like nuclear very much. It sounds like their fears have been stoked massively by these hugely potentially hugely overblown uh death numbers from some of the very rare accidents that occur yes exactly um there's also everyone then mentions fukushima which is honestly just annoys me it annoys me so much because the fukushima disaster in inverted commas was the result of a huge earthquake hitting um your your, your japan knowledge is better than mine Stuart. so tohoku is the bitter is the region of japan at the top of the main island it says yeah the so it's me. it's like the scotland bit of Japan. It's like the top of the main the main okay. island. It's 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 north of Tokyo and it's the, yeah. the sort of top top bits top, uh, top parts there. So the, they refer to the um the, the this this gigantic earthquake, probably the, the the one of the largest in recent years with a tsunami which, as well. Of course, a vast tsunami off yeah causing offshore. And so it was called the referred to as the Tohoku earthquake because of it and, yeah. and tsunami because of it it hit that bit of Japan. So so as I understand it, there are twenty two thousand people um, either missing or dead from uh, following the Fukushima the Tohoku earthquake. Right, so that's twenty thousand right. confirmed dead and two thousand still missing. Which twelve years later, you know, you pro- probably can lump them in, right? So not the not none to do with the nuclear plant, but just the fact that there was a massive earthquake and a massive huge, tsunami huge earthquake. Yeah, exactly. And, right, yeah. right next to a really heavily populated part of Japan, and that hit the Fukushima, the the, the tsunami and the quake really badly damaged this old. Uh, nuclear reactor, the, Fuku- yeah. uh, the Fu- Fukushima Daiichi, I believe it was called, yes. and it caused it to melt down and uh, it basically caused it to, ha- to break really quite terribly. And that, you know, obviously was very scary and released loads of radi- radiation to the local area. But out of the twenty-two thousand, you know, twenty-two thousand people dead from the earthquake, and there is one potent possible death from radiation from fukushima the right. um the, the the japanese government agreed that one plant worker's death um from lung cancer was attributable to fukushima uh geraldine thomas who's um professor of medical physics i spoke to for a piece i wrote for the eye a year or so ago a couple of years she told me at the time that uh, told me for that piece that the government paid up for this lung cancer death but right. the who said it was not attributable to radiation and this worker was only exposed to 19 millisieverts and if you remember 
being being a resident of Cornwall exposes you to seven millisieverts. So, I mean, it's you know, it's she just said right. it's almost certainly nothing to do with Fukushima. So it's like yeah. one of those. It's like one of those cases where there's like a, a court case decides a scientific fact, and it's like, well, you know, you might get compensation for it, but actually, it's not actually established scientifically, and it's still highly arguable whether exactly like that thing actually... happened with glyphosate. Exactly the same thing happened with right, glyphosate. right, exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking of those kind of things where compensation is paid out because of something which t- is mm. a scientific question. It might not be possible to answer it, but in theory, it should be possible to answer it. But the court decides, and it's not always because they've, you know, done Understood, a massively yeah. detailed scientific survey of the evidence. But what, I mean, what is worth noting is that an estimated 2,000 people died from the evacuation of, of the area around Fukushima. Yeah. Now, I've seen, I've seen some people say that the evacuation was botched, like it was too rushed and too hurried and stuff. And some people say that it needn't have been done at all like it was an overreaction in in many cases um and people were waiting around living in like gym halls of schools and stuff for for months and maybe even years afterwards when they didn't have they yeah. didn't have done that i mean certainly the most of the story about the reaction to fukushima is one of overreaction so it wouldn't surprise me at all i, I don't yeah. know obviously and you know who knows whether there would have been more deaths from it, more that is in more radiation deaths than the possible one if they hadn't done this evacuation but 2,000 people are estimated to have died from sort of the stress of evacuation. Uh, Hannah Ritchie, when she does her estimate of the death tolls attributable to uh, to nuclear power, she includes those 2,000, which I think is generous. Um, but right. then she's like she's being conservative by with her estimate on Chernobyl, arguably. So you know, yes. maybe it's fair enough. But nonetheless, it, there's just no there is no evidence for uh, any sort of death toll whatsoever from Fukushima apart from, from this, the radiation from the yeah. radiation yes yeah. from apart from yeah. this yeah. one like, person old, older folks being ripped out of their houses and moved to, to you know live in temporary places and rushed along and stressed out massively and you can, you can totally see why lots of people would yeah would uh, you know would die in a, in a massively um, sort of chaotic situation like that but as far as the as far as the radiation goes, no. Yeah, nothing much to sort. So, yeah. so I think the, what we can look at the death tolls from nuclear power, and you can say there's a confirmed fewer than a hundred. Like, um, thir- you know, there's you can there's, there's basically thirty to fifty who you can say reasonably this person here died from yes. uh, died from it. There are you could reasonable estimate of perhaps four hundred people, maybe, or if you include Hannah, if you include the the, evacu- the evacuees, maybe two thousand five hundred. But I, I I am tempted not to include them. But you know that's that's hard. It's hard to you know it's hard to say. I don't know what the, what the right thing to yeah. do there is. There are then unreasonable estimates of the sort of sixty thousand plus figure, which just strike yeah. me as false. You know, um, if you use the reasonable plus the Fukushima 2000, then you get about the same death rate from nuclear as you do from wind and solar. If you used what seems to me the obviously silly 60,000, then you end up at about half the rate, the death rate of hydropower, which is, like we said, dominated by that right. dam bursting in China. Um, and if you uh, include the 500,000 figure, then... Uh, then all bets are off. You're, you're just being very silly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think it's just, again, then we can basically say, no, you're not You're not treating this seriously. Yeah. And, you know, both Fukushima and Chernobyl were old plants, but like we discussed earlier, plants will get old, and if we fill the world up with them, that I don't know how much for defense that is exactly, but they are certainly, modern plants are much safer and can be better, uh, better designed nowadays. The Studies Show is brought to you by the I newspaper, for whom one of us writes, but not me. That's me. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and I used to. And uh, it's got loads of good stuff in it. Uh, this week, um, I've been reading a lovely interview with Richard Osman, um, who used to... Some British viewers will know him from 
Pointless. I was very sad when he left Pointless. He was really, really good. Um, very tall chap, and he's now become a. a he's started. It's just an incredible thing. He just decided to start writing crime novels, and now has written three massive bestsellers. And they're massively they're successful. Yeah, incredibly yeah, yeah. successful. It really makes yeah. me angry. Like he just like he was just, <laughs> yes. he, just, he was working behind the scenes on some TV thing. He's like, you know, what? I'll just go in front of the. Uh, I'll I'll make loads of smash hits behind the scenes. Then I'll go and. Uh, be on front be in front of it and become a huge like tv star and then you know i've had enough of that i'll go and write a quick novel and oh dear it's sold it's top of the bestseller lists and i'm a massive star and i've done it again and I've, that's yeah. uh yeah that is irritating to uh yeah. the rest of us yeah yeah what drives me mad of course is that actually um he seems really nice and uh, he comes across really <laughs> like a really friendly yeah. chap in this in this in this interview and I, i've had a bit of inter- interactions with him on twitter he just seems like a lovely chap uh drives me mad anyway lovely <laughs> interview strong strongly recommend you go and you go and uh read it on the eye and um yeah. if you go to inews.co.uk slash podcast is that right Stuart? yes that's great then you There's get a deal there is a deal at some some percentage of money off on your uh subscription which give you access 50%, to among other things 50 percent 50 i should this sort yeah. of figure finger, figures i should have at my fingertips um but yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh Stuart and you can then, get with, with that you can access you can read as much of the paper as you want you can access uh subscriber only content including my weekly newsletter where i go into some scientific details on some topic or other. I mean, I've, the, the, really, the topics range uh, massively. My most recent one was about the uh, death of Sir Ian Wilmot, the guy who... Oh, uh, yeah, sad. Dolly the Sheep. Owning Dolly the Sheep, yes, uh, and yeah. the sort of legacy of, uh, of Dolly for uh, biology. That's really interesting. Okay, and um, uh, what have you got, Stuart? Well, the study show is also brought to you by Works in Progress magazine. Uh, it's an online magazine... Um, for which Tom and I have both written also in the past, which is all about technology, science, and human progress. And very appropriately for this episode, there's an essay by Jack Devaney, or Devaney, depending on how you pronounce it. We have uh, failed to decide in, yeah. the, uh, in the show itself about plutonium. And actually, it mentions the uh, terrifying experiments that were done on people without their knowledge or consent about plutonium, but also lots of other evidence too, building up the case that actually, as long as you don't eat plutonium, uh, which I try not to do, well, yeah, yeah, mm. um, and you would have to, you know, have a have a, you know, breathe in quite a lot of it. Actually, it doesn't seem that it's that dangerous, and certainly, given how useful it is, it, it doesn't seem like our fears kind of line up with how dangerous it actually is. So there's a really, really great uh, um, article there on Works in Progress. There's also a a recent um, issue of Works in Progress with just tons of really interesting essays on all sorts of aspects, including one recently about the, um, the baby boom after the war, what caused it, what it means, um, and an angle on it that I hadn't really seen before. We all think that the baby boom happened after World War II because of World War II, that everyone was sort of relieved after the war and they had loads of babies after that um, because the world seemed much more optimistic. But actually, there's lots of evidence that the baby boom in many countries happened before the war and including it also happened in neutral countries that never fought the war. So there does seem to be kind of evidence against it there. So take take a look at worksinprogress.co. So that's it, just .co. um, And you'll find endless stuff to just fill up your brain with loads of interesting ideas Uh, we both love it and we're very grateful that they have chosen to sponsor uh, the study show so thanks very much thanks very very and to to works in progress and now on with the show moving on from sort of direct safety issues as in will it kill the the other thing that people talk about is nuclear waste and i i think 
people sort of imagine that nuclear nuclear plants are sort of churning out vast quantities of glowing you know, like the you, it's the simpsons is the classic thing isn't the it green you know, glowing green, rod, green yeah. glowing rods and barrels of just leaky stuff but um Again, it's it's another one where the sort of public image of these things, I think, runs ahead of the reality. There's like um, back to Jack Devaney or Devaney. Um, <laughs> he he. There's basically there's just not very much actual waste comes off these things. Uh, Connecticut Yankee nuclear power plant. This is Devaney's story that ran for 28 years and was de- decommissioned in 1996. In in those 28 years, it produced just over a, a thousand tons, 1,020 tons of used fuel, which they um stored in concrete and steel casks on a big concrete pad on the site so this right. concrete pads like 25 meters by 75 meters 70 feet long by 228 feet wide so i think that's about the length of a swimming pool by three like three lengths of a swimming, uh, swimming pool so you know quite quite a big area right it's not sure. not it's not small but if you had had a coal plant running for that long and producing the same amount of energy uh, Devani reckons it would have produced between three million and six million tons of toxic ash, and if you tried to store that, <laughs> right. yeah. So if you tried to store that on uh, on the on the uh, Connecticut Yankee um, fuel cask pad, you've had a column of ash about seven thousand feet high. Um, <laughs> Again, you're asking the question: What are you comparing it to? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so like it's actually that's something I was speaking to about a few people. Like it's um, it's kind of a solved problem. You can you can just if you've got enough room to build a nuclear a big nuclear plant, you've got enough room to store the nasty waste on it, and you put it you put it in these big long lasting concrete cases, and just you every sixty years for safety, you might have to replace them. But if you price that into the cost of energy, it's it's pretty acceptable. Um, and you can just find a place in the middle of nowhere to do it, right? There's a there's a there's Yucca Mountain in in uh, Nevada, where the U.S. dump loads of their spent nuclear fuel, and yeah. it's just like in the middle of nowhere near. I think it's in the Las Vegas, like near Las Vegas somewhere, but it's basically in the middle of nowhere in the desert because Las Vegas is in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Yes, and uh, you can just dump it there, and you don't need to worry about it. I, I don't. I, I've never really seen what the big what the no what exactly the, 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 the massive fear is. I, the, have you seen those cool signs that they design for? like future civilizations to try and communicate to them that's like there is something here that's bad do not go in here yeah the bad spirits are within this mountain (laughs) yeah Yeah, yeah. exactly um except yeah there's then for for numbers because according to the iaea the the um the world total production of spent fuel which i think is what when people say high level you know what they mean by the high level waste the really nasty stuff you don't want and that is about three hundred ninety thousand tons ever in the world since the first nuclear plant was built in 1954 and i was looking around a bit i mean there um the belchatov or belchatov or something lignite mine coal mine in poland produces about a million tons of waste every year on its own like you know, it's is not the, really, the really the really really dirty coal, dirty yeah, coal. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah yeah this isn't to say there's like there's there's no problem here the um the uh again speaking for when i was speaking to um oh what was his name? Fra- francis livens frank livens who is a another um, nuclear scientist and he was telling me look there's a societal and a political problem you've got here the te- technically it's kind of solved but you've got to find somewhere to put this stuff and it's actually you know totally understandably if you go to a local community say it's going to store a few thousand tons of or a few hundred tons of high level nuclear waste in your right. in your area they're not going to like it and, right. and the- countries have the, the nevada desert to put their exactly waste exactly in. so so in the uk when we were doing, the government used to have this system that was called decide announce defend where you decide 
which Livens tell you the government decides it's going to put the waste in Francis Livens's garden, um, and they tell me, and, and then they t- they just tell me, and they, and they defend it, and they say, I, he says, and I say, you bastards, and then there's a big row, right? But right. then he so so the government the government used to often back down, so so the the decide announce defend thing got became known as the DADA, which was decide announce defend abandon, because um, oh. everyone they give it up. But oh. um, yeah, but since about 2007, they really changed it. There's this sort of they went to a volunteer a volunteeristic model where you go to local communities and say, look, if we if you let us build um waste depositories around here, you know, in very remote communities, we will then uh give you something something in exchange, generally a form of like cheaper energy or other sort of benefits. Right. So so you're 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 so that people are able to sort of volunteer for it. And it becomes and it's apparently it's much easier to deal with nowadays. They sort of have found ways around the societal societal and political issues involved. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Another uh, issue, though, is that people worry about nuclear waste um, because of nuclear proliferation. So mm. they worry that if we're building more nuclear reactors, as we talked about before, that, that's going to increase the safety issues. You know, it's going to increase the number of potential meltdowns that will happen. But also, it could, if you have a nuclear reactor in a country that is has a fairly fragile state or is is is, is not particularly, you know, we're well defended or or, or whatever you risk that people will be able to take the nuclear fuel and use it to produce nuclear weapons, right? Yeah, I mean... That's a, a concern like, people have. Is that, is, that, is that... I mean, I suppose it must be, because that is how you make these... You know, Iran is trying to do... Try, you know, there's once... Right, that's why we wanted to shut down their nuclear power program, because... They would convert it into. Uh, they would convert it into. Yeah, so rogue states like that. Um, yeah, I, I and, can see um, that being a realistic. I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about it actually to say if that's a realistic concern. But yeah, it, seems it comes to, up. It, it mu- I feel like it must be. Well, I mean, who knows, right? But it comes up in what I can see. Fairly sensible discussions of this. It does come up as a sort of a concern among all the other things. Yeah, I mean, because I suppose that that brings up another issue. I suppose which is. You know, you're, recy- you're talking about recycling, basically, and the, the one mm. issue that people, you know, uranium has to be mined, right? They're, all the stuff yeah. for these things has to be mined, and does that hit its environmental, you know, credentials somewhat? Right, the I carbon th- produced by the mining could be more than yeah, we exactly, think. and and just the environmental damage, right? You have a big open cast yeah. uh, mine. It's um, largely in Kazakhstan, I believe that. Uh, um yes it's the biggest the biggest producer there's also uh i think canada australia niger uh, china you know fairly random places around the world um uh not to rely entirely on hannah ritchie for this uh she did a great (laughs) thing on her uh, on her own Substack, which we'll link to again um but she points out that we currently mine around seven million tons of minerals for low carbon technology every year and that includes the minerals for solar panels, wind energy, geothermal, solar, hydropower, nuclear, electric vehicles, battery storage, a whole lot. So including all the stuff you need for nuclear, like uranium. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out 7 million tons, incl- uh, would, of which uranium, uranium is only a fraction, right? Uh, and you compare that to the 5 billion tons of coal, 4 billion tons of oil, and 3 billion tons of natural gas that right. are um, mined every year. So it's just... it's. It's a thousandth, a less than a thousandth, the sort of quantity. It's just, in terms of the the environmental damage. It's it's trivial compared to what we're doing with fossil fuels. So right. it's, I I think we can. What sort are you of, comparing it to again? Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Now, the big question, right? Because we talked about the safety and the waste and the environmental impact, and I do think on all of those things, actually, nuclear is gets really traduced, really bad rep for something that where yeah. it's genuinely good. That said. 
people also say, what's the point in it? Because it is really expensive. And it is really expensive. It, it is, mm-hmm. it, it, so this is where we get a bit more technical stuff. So the what you want to talk about is the levelized cost of energy. Because you can't just look at the amount of energy it costs to produce each terawatt hour or megawatt hour or whatever of, of energy. Because if you're building a gas plant, it's really cheap to build the plant but it's quite but the actual amount of and each new unit of energy you make is quite expensive because you have to use the gas for it if you build okay. a um uh a wind farm or something like that the building the actual wind turbine might be quite expensive you need a lot of uh, uh you know like uh, lithium and all these uh, rare earths and things that you need to build but on its mine but then actually once it's running it's pretty much free so you have to work out over the light that levelized cost of energy is the average cost of a is the cost of a, a unit of energy over the lifetime of over the, its whole lifetime right yeah exactly yeah. from from you know mining and and building to decommissioning and then the the the, the marginal cost of each one in between right okay. um nuclear once it's up and running is really cheap it's pretty cheap uh because you don't need much uranium and once you've got you got it, it just it just keeps churning it out but the, it's, it's a huge investment to get there. yeah exactly yeah. so 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 um and the claim is that nuclear compared to solar and wind is just outrageously expensive nuclear that the solar and wind are vastly cheaper and it's kind of true it's just, it's just like that i i i will you know in the same way we can say that i say at the top that it's just kind of true that nuclear is safe it's just kind of true that nuclear is loads more expensive than these other things right. yeah. um uh, i should uh, this next bit I, I phoned up a couple of people who know much more about this than i do i figured you know you can read the studies but i'm a journalist for, first and foremost so that's my comparative advantage mm. i'll go and just wow. ask people questions you know phone them up yeah, um yeah exactly so uh, i'm gonna credit um jenny chase who's a solar analyst at bloomberg nef and Tim Lord, who's head of climate change at HSBC and a former government energy wonk. Um, I w- I'm sort of running thank on Chatham them. House rules. Yes, thank you both to both of them because uh, because if I screw anything up, uh, I don't want it to be attributable to one of them. When so just right. this is just Air my observers rather yeah, than this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So one thing it's absolutely true: the cost of, of renewables drops incredibly fast. If you want just to just cheer yourself up, go and look again on our world in data at the cost of solar. Uh, the cost oh, yeah. of a watt. Amazing of, um, graph. Yeah, it's incredible. Just it's like you have to put it on a log scale, otherwise it just like just looks like a falling cliff, yeah. you know, and then a plateau. Um and the you need to be a bit careful about this because when if you build a megawatt of solar capacity, it won't give you a megawatt of energy all the time because sometimes uh, well, I, well yeah, sometimes it's nighttime. You know, I, 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 yeah. you know citation yeah, needed right. and all that, but you know, yeah. or it's cloudy. Um and the wind is the same problem. Uh, nuclear is much more reliable. If you get a a gigawatt of nuclear capacity it gives you about five times as much actual electricity as a gigawatt of solar but lcoe takes that into account it takes the amount of energy you actually expect to get out of it right mm-hmm. and the lcoe of hinkley point c is something like 300 pound dollars per megawatt for a solar it's depends on a lot of things but it's more like a hundred dollars so it's just it is just true that solar is a lot cheaper right mm-hmm. now there's, you might say, well, so what's the point of building nuclear? And the point is you don't just care about the cost. They have other values. You also care about the, the job it does. In in Texas, where they're building huge amounts of solar energy, it is incredibly good. Because in, in Texas, firstly, they've got loads of sun. Very sunny there. Yeah. Very, very sunny. Have you? You've done it's a real Texas tour of the states, haven't you? Have you? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah that's cool. Um, so you get loads and loads of solar energy. But more importantly than that, or equally importantly to that, peak demand in uh, electricity demand in in Texas is when it's hot. 
to when it's sunny because that's when the air conditioning comes on. So your your demand you. and it's, your supply you it's very necessary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your demand and your supply correlate. You know, you get your peak your peak demand um, is at the same time as your peak supply. In Finland, for instance, that's not much <laughs> use because you when you want your solar energy, you want it in the um, you want it in the winter evenings. It's, it's very dark. Uh, it's dark. Evening, it's cold. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So you, so your your peak energy demand is actually anti correlated with your solar output. Mm. So solar is much less useful. You can you can get around that somewhat with wind and hydro. Wind is uh, tends to come more in the in the winter when it's um, not sunny. And the and hydro, you know, solar happens when often when it's dry, and you get more hydro when it's wet, and so there's mm. so you do you you these things do uh, level these things out, but the you need something, or the case basically it, if this was if building a ninety percent renewable energy system is pretty doable, building a hundred percent renewable energy system is incredibly difficult right. because you right. need to have because uh, there's just not that many ways at the moment of storing the energy. Batteries are great if you modern battery technology is getting pretty good if you want to store it for a day. It's not so much good if you want to store it for a few weeks or certainly not for six months. There's things like you can pump it pump water up a river valley like a fjord and build a big dam, but that's these are complicated. There, there might be ways mm. in future, but at the moment you pretty much just need something to provide a base load of electricity so that when if there's a weird day when there's no sun and there's right. no wind we don't have a catastrophic loss of electricity yeah and every, and everyone yeah. boils or freezes or whatever the bad, yeah. you know the bad yeah. thing is um and you could at the moment we do that with gas uh, generally speaking it's gas right. power plants and that works pretty effectively but if we want to build a, a zero carbon energy system mm-hmm. It's probably the moment. It's probably going to have to be nuclear. That was that. Was, at least right. that was the case that both the um, uh, both of the people I spoke to said, and, I, and that sounds pretty plausible to me. Basically, yeah. the, it is absolutely true that nuclear is vastly more expensive in a lot of ways, but it just has uses. It has it has a sort of constant output reliability that the other ones don't. And when you know, when if it's constantly churning out in the background and you're making stuff you don't need at non at off peak times, that's Sell it to another country. Sell it to another country. Uh, yep. Use it to make hydrogen. You know, uh, yeah. some, there's things you can use with off-peak off-peak uh, energy. And generally speaking, yeah. having more energy than you need is good because it makes it makes energy cheap, and you can go and smelt yeah. steel with it or something. So I, this was this was the impression I got from uh you know from the solar you know these are these are people who are very much solar boosters and you know like real like solar is incredible and doing amazing things people but they they both said like broadly speaking in the near future as technology stands you're going to need some sort of base load and unless you want carbon you know fossil fuel things you're going to have to use nuclear so that was so so i think so that was the that was the upshot that i got or from unless that. someone designs a much much better battery uh that's that's the real exciting breakthrough technology that could that could yeah. change everything right vastly better battery massive. or some or some other yeah meth, mo, the, you know people talk about like pumping heavy weights up things uh, or like um or pumping water up valleys to which then you let out when it when you need it huh. to um but it's I, it, it, we're not there yet, and it's a huge infrastructure build for it to yes. happen. So, yeah, yeah. It, so building a few nuclear power plants is what seems to be the best option as technology stands, despite it being very expensive. As, uh, and in, uh, in the meantime, we could potentially make nuclear power less expensive. This is the back to the um, Jack Devaney Devaney uh, argument that uh, that he makes is that mm. the fears about the terrible dangers of nuclear radiation 
cause the plants to become more much more expensive than they should be because they have this rule the kind of international rule for building nuclear new nuclear plants is that radiation the, the, the risk of, of um you know radiation to the staff and to the general surrounding area should be alara so as low as reasonably achievable and the reasonably part is quite arguable there so devani would say devani would say it's not reasonable to have as much you know to spend as much time worrying about the safety um as they do and having more and more and more um safety procedures mm. um because that just drives the price up massively and jason crawford who reviewed the book uh Daphne's book says it essentially says that if nuclear becomes cheap then the regulations have not done their job so the regulations just force it to be more and more expensive because there's always something else you can add there's always something else yeah. you can do to reduce the risk that the staff will you know have any radiation whatsoever and if we understand that actually there is a threshold and low doses of radiation are actually not that dangerous if you look across all the evidence according to you know the analysis that we've seen uh if you understand that then we can actually do away with some of these rules and make nuclear much cheaper as well yeah. so that's you know that that would remove one of the the major obstacles to uh why we have you know there's another point as well which so people few, told me which plans. is that if you if you like if you look at um like places like France and South Korea, which do build these things, the costs are cheaper because they have the skilled workforce required to build them. Whereas in the UK, we we haven't built one for thirty years, and the same in the US. So if you want to build a nuclear plant, you've got to build, bring in a bunch of people from outside and and learn right. stuff off the and right. and build a, and you've got no sort of set um, template by which to build. So hopefully, that you know, they're going to build a new one. At, is it? Sizewell or Dungeness, so the next one, which can be based off the exact same blueprints as the Hinkley one, and and hopefully right. that will be much cheaper. So, okay, right. so, so it is just a, we've we've let the um, the skills whether on the vine as part of it. So hopefully, hopefully it will get cheaper. Yeah. But nonetheless, it is definitely true that nuclear is more expensive. It's just the the people who are the, the pro solar people are definitely right about that. It's just that right. there is more that you care about than just straightforward cost per megawatt of capacity there's also the the jobs they do which are different so well that's it i think uh the study show is broadly pro-nuclear power we are i, I mean that's yeah. probably quite predictable wasn't it with that sort yeah, of i think person. so, I think so. Uh, yeah. um, and it only remains to say thank you so much for listening um and again you know if you want to leave us a review or tell a friend or subscribe to the show at the studyshowpod.com then please do and it just remains one more question, Tom, which is why should you not buy Ukrainian underwear? Oh, God, I don't know, Stuart. Go on, tell me. Because uh, Chernobyl fallout. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. 